starting a brand new series called Unbelievable, and um, the idea of the series uh, that focuses around the amazing fact, as the video showed, the amazing fact that this holy God who created everything would go through such drastic measures, do such crazy things to save a world that didn't even like him, that saved a a world who pushed against him, to save a a sinful world, the perfect God coming to save a sinful world and to do in a drastic and crazy way. Over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be taking a look at some of these unbelievable events that happened in and around that, the, the worst and the best week of human history, uh, when Jesus was betrayed, arrested, killed, buried, and then when he rose again. So this series is actually comes from a, a, a principle or a truth that you and I experience every single moment of every single day of our life. There's, there's this thing that, that the series is based on, this statement, if you will, this truth that, that comes out uh, that affects you whether you know it or not. And the truth is, and the statement is this, when the spectacular catches, while the spectacular catches your attention, the familiar goes unnoticed. Think about that. When the spectacular, while the spectacular catches your attention, the familiar goes unnoticed. It's like this. Say you're one of the 18 million people in the morning driving across the bridge from Hudson to go into Minnesota, and as you're driving through the parking lot, um, you see on the, the highway, you see just on the, car, on the side, there's a car that's parked with its flashers on. No other cars, just the car is parked. As you're driving, you kind of take a glance, but you don't think anything of it, right? kind of pass by them, less than a second later you forget that they're there. But if that car had a police car behind it with flashing lights, what happens? I mean, other than it takes you three hours to get to 3M, you know, other than that, you know, you start, you slow down, you, you, it, you catch, your eye catches that because it's spectacular. It's out of the normal routine. I mean, think about billboards. Think about commercials. Think about an item when you go shopping and the displays. I mean, there's this, this whole psychology that happens even just with colors. Certain colors elicit you to buy immediately or to buy a certain product. All marketers and, and advertisers study this, and they know this. Um, when you start a business, one of the key questions that you formulate as you're formulating your b- business plan is, what is your USP? What is your unique selling proposition or, or, or position. What's unique about what you're doing as a business, as a service business, as a, as a commodity business, whatever it is? What is unique about that? If you stand out, you're noticed. But if you're like everyone else, you're just another face in the crowd. And why? It's because we're human and we act, we react to something that's over and above, something that's out of the norm, something that's spectacular if you will. So why is this such a key, seri- uh, key phrase in our series? Well, if you're like me, and I know many of you are, you grew up in church. How many of you can, have just can, have been in church like since Jesus was on the earth, it feels like? Yeah, you know, a lot of us, we just sort of grow up in church and, and we, we get the ebb and the flow of how church life happens and how Sunday mornings happen. It just becomes familiar. It, it almost becomes a been there, done that kind of thing. Here's an example. I could start a prayer, and you could finish it and think about five other things at the same time. Don't believe me? Our Father, who art in heaven... Yeah, I see, you're doing it, right? And 
I know, right just earlier in the service, as we're, you just start into it and then you're thinking about the lights and what do we got going for lunch, we just do that because it's familiar. We get used to it. And I'm not, I'm not bashing ritual or the role of memorization or any of that. But I think, because I think they have a place. But I know that when something important becomes familiar, we often forget how important it can be for our lives, our relationships with others, and also and especially our relationship with God, which brings us to this season. So how many of you know what season we're in in the church? Lent, right, right. We're in the season of Lent. And uh, for those of you who aren't churched, uh, there are seasons of the year within the church life that the church has kind of set us apart, not just our church, but churches all over the world, that have set apart, that celebrate certain aspects of our faith, of our Christian faith. Everybody knows of these main two, Christmas and Easter. Those are kind of set apart, especially since they're, they're around uh, the, the life, the birth, and the, the resurrection of Jesus. But leading up to those seasons, the, the church thought, okay, we have Christmas and Easter, but rather than just sort of go through the calendar and boom, Christmas, okay, we keep going, or Easter, and then we keep going, the early church thought, what if we set it up? What if there was a time before each of these major festivals, for example, where we took time to prepare for that festival, for Christmas? So here's how this happens. So before Christmas, there's a season called Advent. Advent basically means to look forward or to uh, bring forth or to anticipate something. And it's usually four Sundays. It's not, it, it could be, it's anywhere, you can't do the days because it changes, but it's usually four Sundays before Christmas. Lent, the season that we started actually this last Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, uh, is approximately 40 days in between um, Ash Wednesday and when Easter, um, when Easter happens. It's a wonderful time. It's a time of reflection, a time of thinking about the truth that you and I were broken people living in a broken world. Now, even if you're not a churchgoer, you know the importance of reflection. You know the importance that of, of, ta- of stopping and looking, looking at your life or your business or your relationships or your family and saying, okay, what's going well? What's, what are some areas that aren't going well? You don't have to be a Christian to, to do this or believe in this or, or know the power of it because we all need to do that. Areas in our life that need a tune-up or totally change altogether. For Christ followers, Lent is that time. That time when we remember why Jesus suffered like he did in the first place, to bring us from death to life. Now, this was such an important time, this Lenten season, such an important time in the life of the early Roman, Roman church, uh, so much so that they, they wanted to, they created policies and procedures to facilitate this reflection process. One of them is sort of lost to history, but it was called tempus clausum. It's Latin, uh, and it basically means a closed season. Now, a closed season means during Lent, for example, you can't have any fun. Seriously, no drinking, no partying, no fun, no nothing during Lent. The early church itself, they did no weddings. They did no baptisms. They, did no, they actually didn't even really do uh, uh, Christian education at any, at any level. They said, no merriment among the life of the church. In fact, here's a, one of the quotes said this. No merriment shall occur, for merriment and the like 
disfigures the depravity of our situation before God. Welcome to church. You know, how depressing. That's what they said. In fact, if you look up here, we, we during the season of Lent, decided to kind of minimalize it a little bit. We don't have our, our shears normally, you know, even our backgrounds on our, on our slides, uh, if you notice over these next couple of weeks, are kind of muted. They're darker, they're kind of gray uh, in color. Um, I, I thought about removing our real fake plants, but I like that look, so I decided not to. Um, but so, so that's that tempest clausum. You're, you're more familiar in Lent with another ritual that people have taken on called you're giving up something for Lent, right? How many of you are doing that or have done that in the past? Yeah, we give up something for Lent. Uh, alcohol, going to movies, watching TV, you know, those, those can all be good things, you know, to kind of give those things up. One person said, this year I'm giving up guilt for Lent. I was like, that's pretty good. So, Again, those can, be, those can be good things. Now, transition, if you know anything about Jesus, you know that when he showed up on the planet, he was not about duplicating these kind of traditions. He wasn't about teaching the same things that everybody else taught. He wasn't about uh, duplicating the rituals and the church expressions and the experiences that people experience in church. When Jesus came, he ushered in something brand new, totally new. And it was so radical to the people of the day. It was so radical to the people of the day. He took what was being taught and flipped it on its head. In the culture of the day, here's what it looked like. There were two huge divides in the culture. There was one people class that were considered the elites. These were the government officials. These were the highly educated people. These were the religious leaders were part of this high elite uh, a portion of society. So it was either that or it was everybody else who was poor. There was no middle class. They just didn't exist. It was the high elite and everybody else. But even if, even if you were part of that everybody else group, there were certain rankings even between, even in there. If you were, for example, if you were a male citizen of the region in which your city was, region in the country, um, you were at one status, but if you were quip, crippled, um, lame for whatever reason, or worse, a woman, serious, you had very little rights as a woman back then. And men governed who you married, how you lived, and when and where you could be seen in public. If you study Islam, you know that part of their, their tradition and part of the way that they live is this thing called Sharia law. Anybody ever hear that phrase? If you, you should be hearing it more and more because it's, it's starting to make its way through our country here. In Dallas, there was also, there was also not, not even going to go there. Um, but Sharia law basically says this. It's basically their system of belief and practice and how to live within the context of a, a, or a, an Islam um, world system. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's taken from several different places, the Quran, the Hadith, and some different practices, and much of it hasn't changed over the years. A lot of the, the honestly, the oppression that Sharia law has, especially for women, for example, comes from this time period that Jesus lived. That there were, again, the elites, there were the non-elites, there were the men, and then there was everybody else. 
Jesus comes along and says this amazing thing and started teaching this publicly that when, I'm, when, I, when, when he spoke what I'm just about to say, people were just like, what? And you want to know what it is? You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, all human beings are valuable in the sight of God. Back then, people would have, people did, they freaked out. They're like, what are you talking about? Not everybody's valuable in sight of God. Those who give a lot to our religious institutions are. Those who are power brokers are, but not, you know, the crippled, the lame. They're invalids. They're invalid. Now, for us, we're like, well, of course. We know that. Remember, the familiar becomes just sort of part of our, you know, it doesn't become important anymore. But Jesus flipped everything up upside down. It becomes familiar for us when Jesus talks that way because we're used to it. It's familiar. And we tend to forget that people are valuable. All people are valuable. All people matter to God. And how do I know that you forget it? How do you respond when someone in front of you forgets to turn on their left-hand blinker when they're making a left-hand turn on Main Street? Come on! Oh, seriously? Now I'm going to be nine seconds late, right? All people have value, even in the midst of a broken world and sin. Yet even in that sin, Jesus taught this awesome message of love, of acceptance. He taught a message that all people matter to God, and we, we see him demonstrate that in the worst moment of his earthly life on the cross. Now, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 23. That's where our verse is coming from today. Um, and this is where Jesus demonstrates one of the most unbelievable ideas about the gospel, that God the holy, most powerful, almighty God would love the unlovable of our society, the unlovable of the world, that he would accept the unacceptable. So let me set this up a little bit um, before we get into the verse. The upper religious leaders, like the same, that group that I mentioned, they felt that Jesus was gaining too much popularity. The Bible even says that the religious leaders were jealous of Jesus' popularity. So they formed a group to try and figure out how to capture him and try him and kill him because of their jealousy for him and what he was, you know, the the message that he was saying. They had him arrested, tried, and condemned to death. And so here we see Jesus being led out to be crucified. So let's take a look at Luke 23, starting at verse 32. So he's getting led out there, and uh, the Bible says that two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place of the skull, and this, was just, this wasn't a hill necessarily, but it was just a place that some of the, the, de- the demographics in the rock looked like a, a skull, so they called it place of the skull. It was right on Main Street. I mean, it was anything, going into Jerusalem at that point, that was the Main Street. So if you were crucified there, everybody would see it as kind of a sign that you don't mess around with the government. So when they came to the place of the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals one on his right and the other on his left. Now, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, and this is actually sarcastic in the original language, it's, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. So Jesus is there. You got one guy just railing on Jesus, railing on Jesus. But the other criminal, it says, 
rebuked the first criminal. That same rebuke is when Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves, you know, like a parent does to a child. That's how this criminal did it to the other criminal. He said, hey, knock it off, he says. Not really. He says, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. This man, this Jesus guy, has done nothing wrong. Now, historians believe that the criminals actually knew Jesus before this. It wasn't just sort of like they all showed up in prison and, and went and were crucified. Because at this time, Jerusalem was about 30,000 people in total. And it wasn't, it was actually Jerusalem proper was smaller. It was all the surrounding villages, if you know that area, totaled 30,000 people. Back then, there were no cell phones. There, were no t- there wasn't TV. There wasn't the, you know, you couldn't go and watch Netflix back then. Uh, it just wasn't there. So what they did for entertainment was anything that happened in the city, everybody showed up. Everybody knew about it. It spread like wildfire. Hey, there's something to do. And if, you, if you're a Bible student, you know that um, in Acts, there was, a, there was a time when Paul and his buddies were just about to be uh, persecuted, and like all these people came for the hearing, and the Bible says most of the people didn't even know why they were there. That, that's how it was in Jerusalem. People just sort of showed up when they heard something was happening. It's kind of like a fight at high school, you know? I just thought of it. You know, somebody's fighting in high school, and, and everybody surrounds them, and there's a couple guys on the outside kind of watching for teachers, you know? <laughs> and, and you're just standing there going, yeah, yeah, what's going on? I don't know, yeah, yeah, you know? You just, it's sort of like that. That's kind of what, what happened here. Um, so most likely... They had, these criminals heard Jesus speaking about the kingdom of heaven, speaking about who he was. Um, several times in the New Testament, actually, it even says that all of Jerusalem showed up. Um, so at some point along the way, the second criminal sort of was stirred by the message that Jesus was saying. Parts of it were coming together like, oh, wait a second, his message of love is so opposite of this message of law that all the religious people are teaching. And so after this criminal ripped into the other criminal, he looks over at Jesus and he says just these wonderful words. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, there was a thought back then that Jesus was sort of a quasi-king, that he, he was coming actually to usher in a new kingdom that would conquer Rome and set up a new kingdom uh, in that area. Even in his death, they believed that he was able to do that. And so this prayer comes to Jesus. Jesus, remember me in your king, when you come into your kingdom. But here's what's so unbelievable about this interaction. Between the two criminals, we see attitudes about selfishness on the one criminal and surrender in the other criminal. The first focus on his pain his hurt, his situation. The second was focused on leaving the results of his life up to God. The first was demanding, requiring salvation. The second was recognizing the Savior. The focus of the second criminal's prayer and the conversation with Jesus wasn't about ritual. It wasn't about what's the right thing I should say. It was just a simple prayer of Jesus, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, knowing the guilt of the criminal, knowing that society had cast him out, knowing that to everybody else this criminal was considered 
unacceptable, said the most unbelievable statement that is as sweet as anything anybody has ever said. Jesus said this to the criminal. He says this. Truly, I tell you, no, no joke, I'm, this is true, I'm telling you this. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Again, this is where we need to, to remember that the spectacular, you know, it gets noticed, the familiar gets unnoticed, because we just kind of fly through this phrase. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't, use, didn't say, today you're going to be with me in my kingdom. He didn't even say, today you're going to be with me in heaven. He used a very, very specific word, paradise, which means garden. Anybody have a garden? Raise your hand if you have a garden at your house. In, when you can see it, you know, right? For me, we have this little garden in the side of our house, and we have just this little gate, and, and it's only about this high. The, the, the border is only about this high. And we grow, you know, some stuff in there. And I don't know what it is, and maybe I'm just weird. Whenever I open, oh, I know that, but whenever, whenever I open the gate and I step in and I close that, just that little gate behind me, it's like I've stepped into a different world. Anybody else have that feeling? Nobody. Yikes. Okay, so... Play with me here. <laughs> Pretend. So I step in, and there's just something about tending a garden, walking, seeing the life and the fruit and the, the flowers in my garden, that I just kind of am transported to a different place. Jesus specifically used the word paradise because it's an old Persian word that means, that described uh, a king would have his own personal garden within his property, within his kingdom, at his castle. And he, he would, it was really high-walled, nobody could see in, very private, and he would invite only dignitaries into that garden. That is the specific word that Jesus used for somebody like a criminal, for somebody who was the lowest of the low in society. He said, you today are going to be in the inner, inner garden of heaven, of the king. You're going to be walking with me in paradise. And what's so unbelievable about this is, is this, this criminal that we see is in many ways just like us. Because it, we have, we've been condemned because of sin. Our sin would keep us outside of any kingdom, any heaven, and not just outside into nowhere, but a future destination in hell, which is a real place, and you don't want to go there. But in God's amazing love, unbelievable love, he invites us into his kingdom. I use this verse a lot because I love it, and it describes me. Apostle Paul writes in Romans, he says, you see, at just the right time, while we, and this is kind of a bigger we, it's it's like while the world While we were still powerless, we were weak, no strength in us, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died, was on the cross for criminals. He was on the cross for enemies of him. God demonstrated, and then then Paul goes a little bit more specific to talk about you and me personally, and he says, God demonstrated his own love for us, for you and me in this. 
while we were still sinners, while we were still criminals, Christ gave his life for us. You know, maybe right now you feel unacceptable or powerless or weak. The pressures of raising your family have caused you to lose your way. You know, maybe the struggles of life has caused your faith to grow cold, colder than it is outside today. Maybe your joy, you know, you feel it's been crucified on the cross of the familiar. Maybe because of your past or even your present, you're struggling to see how a God so powerful as to create the universe with a single breath could love someone like you who's done the things that you have done. But see, that's the unbelievable thing about this God that we worship. That he accepts the unacceptable. He invites the outcasts into the inner garden of the king. He doesn't have to love you. According to his perfect standard, you don't deserve it. He doesn't have to pour out the blessings on you because there's no way you could earn it. He doesn't have to give you strength for another day for another relationship, for another change that you're facing in your life because in many ways you've brought on the pain of your life yourself and you know it and you're blaming God for it. But yet, the unbelievable thing about our perfect God is that he loved you, an imperfect person. He takes all that brokenness in your life, the pieces that are just on the floor, and makes it all new. Takes your hurts, your pains, your losses, and says, you will be with me. You will walk with me in paradise. The old is gone, the new has come. God himself will wipe away every one of the tears that push down your cheeks simply because he loves you. Not because of your successes or failures, not because of your achievements or losses. He simply loves you. And because of Christ, he sees you as valuable. And the unbelievable part of his love for you is that it's an open invitation. In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us as we close the message time. And um, for those of us who are Christ followers, um, you know, this, this... we started specifically with the criminals on the cross. This is kind of like, you know, if, if you're, again, part of church world, you know that this is actually, we should be talking about this on, on Good Friday. But I wanted to start with this story to set it up that we are all in need of a Savior. And God provided that Savior in Christ. So as we pray in just a moment, um, you can reconfirm that and just thank Him. And, and I, my prayer for you during Lent is as we walk through Lent, that you're able to just take some time and reflect. If you don't know who Christ is, if you're here because you came to see the kids sing, which is awesome, or somebody promised you lunch after this, or I don't know, where, however you got here. I, I, first of all, that's awesome. Whether you're here in the room or listening online, I would pray for you that you would at least consider this love that God has for you. It's not about religion it's not about joining our church. It's not about giving money. It's not about any of that. It's about you walking in the garden with God for eternity. And so in just a moment, we're going to pray. And um, I would just invite you to be like 
the second criminal and surrender to him. Can we do that? Let's do that. Let's stand to pray. Father God, in your mercy and grace, um, you have allowed us to be in this room. And I, every Sunday, uh, I just know that there's a reason all of us are here. And there's a reason those of us um, who are listening online are listening now. And maybe it's just for us who are Christ followers to say, you know what? I do have some reflecting to do. There are areas of my life that I have fallen short, that I've, I've kind of gone off track. And that in love and grace, you bring me back to that. So I pray that for us who are Christ followers. I pray for those of us in this room, God, who don't know you yet personally. They know your name. They've heard you. They maybe read all the stories. But life right now has gotten too heavy and that they need lift, a lift. They need um, the lightness that comes through your love and grace. So I'd ask, God, that you would change, you would stir in their heart, that you would change their hearts to at a minimum consider giving it to you, turning their life over to you. Father, we love you and we love, as we enter into this Lenten season, the ability to be able to come to you freely in this country and to worship you. And I just pray that you would change our hearts over the next few weeks as we look toward Passion Week and then ultimately Easter, which is the celebration of incredible ultimate life, Father. Thank you for that. All this we pray in your son's precious name. All of us said, amen. amen.